We're continuing in our stewardship messages of membership has its possibilities. And the irony of the fact that the Sunday where we have this, all of this wonderful stuff uh, filling up our worship space leaves me the smallest amount of time to preach, and the topic is time. So the irony of that is not lost on me. But I would say to you that in ministry, occasionally, we get to, in the Methodist ministry especially, we get appointed to places to do things that we may not be trained up on, that we may not be skilled in. And one of those things happened to me early in my ministry. I was eager to change appointments and get out of this rural setting I was in. And the bishop came up to me at a function and said, Keith, have you ever thought about church planting? And I told you before, I lied and said, of course I have, bishop, because they don't plant churches in Bogachitta. They just don't. I have a friend from Bogachitti. He says they play the Possum Bowl every year for football. But I knew they, they appointed church planters to populated, wonderful, fast-growing places with like O'Charlie's and, and Qdoba and, and, and Taco Bell and all of these great things like, like Red Lobster. All these places, you know, I've just named. I don't eat it most of them, but that's okay. I knew I could get there. So they appointed me to be a church planner. And I'd been there about a month, and I raised my hand at a meeting, and I said to the DS, uh, do you think I could get some training in this? And she said, what do you mean? I go, nobody's ever taught me how to plan a church. Is there some sort of workshop, some sort of event? And she goes, we'll see. And I go, all right. <laughs> so they send me out to Dallas, Texas, to uh, a workshop being led by Jim Griffith, who is the preeminent expert on how to successfully start a church. Now, Jim's emphasis was starting it. I don't know if his emphasis was on keeping it going, but he was an expert on starting it. And Jim started his presentation, and Emily was there with me, and I can tell you I was feverishly taking notes about what was going to happen, and he, he said these things, here's what you need to start a church. You ready? You can write this down if you want to. He said, here's what you need. You need access to people and funding. And he looked at me and he said, you're a United Methodist, you don't have to worry so much about funding, they pay for most of it until they get tired of paying for it. He said, but you need access to funding to make sure that the church is financially viable. And then he said this, you need a great location. And I thought to myself, I've been appointed to lots of Methodist churches. Usually you go to the busiest intersection in town and there's a sign that says Methodist Church seven blocks that way, you know. But he said, you need a great location, a powerful location with lots of people going by. And then he said, oh, and by the way, you need a clearly defined target audience. Who are you trying to reach? Make sure you emphasize those people and pour everything you got into that. And then he goes on to say the last thing. You need to 
remove all excuses about why people shouldn't come. So you limit the responsibility and inconvenience of those who might show up. And he said, those are the four things you need to start a church. As I listened to it, I thought, it's a surefire plan. I'll write it down. And then I thought, even if it isn't biblical, it's so surefire that it worked for McDonald's and Target and Dollar General and every other business. You see, we want to utilize business and leadership strategies to take the risk out of ministry. To take the risk out of what God may be asking us to do. We want to minimize risk so we can maximize return. When I read through 2 Thessalonians, when I read through any of Paul's work, Paul was the preeminent church planner of his day, was he not? He started all of these churches. He kept them thriving and going. But when I read through the letters of Paul, I realize he didn't have any of these four things. He didn't have access to people and funding that contributed to financial stability. They were always having to beg, plead, steal, and borrow. Well, maybe not steal, but you know what I'm talking about. He didn't have a great location where he was trying to plant churches. They were eternally persecuted. And run out of town. They were beaten up and imprisoned. They didn't have a great location. They didn't have a friendly atmosphere. They didn't have a clearly defined target audience. In fact, they couldn't agree on Gentile or Jew. And they certainly didn't limit the responsibility of the inconvenience of those that came. You see, in the early church, those folk knew what it was to suffer for Jesus. In a way that we can't even imagine. He went into places with nothing, understanding that God was the provider. He went where God sent him and not where demographics looked favorable for growth. He took the gospel to a diverse people. To the Greeks, he became Greek. To the Jews, he became like the Jews. To everybody, he became like them so that they might understand the goodness of Jesus Christ. And he required a lot of people, asking them to do some pretty remarkably sacrificial stuff. So what does the expert, Paul, say that you need to produce and sustain a thriving church? Confirmands, I want you to listen. There's only two things Paul tells us we need to form a thriving and active church. Paul said two things, and you can write these down because these are serious, but they're easy to remember. You need people's time. And you need productive attitude. Time and attitude. You need people's time. Uh, Alex did something today where he read from the family. He, he gave us a little snapshot of what they were. It almost reminded me of Alex. And you'll experience this the longer you're a youth minister. When I first started out in youth ministry, I'd go to all the, the beauty pageants and the homecomings and everything like that. And you know... As you're, as you're sitting there as a proud youth minister, they start walking through and you see them in their gowns or, or doing this or on senior night. This is so-and-so, the daughter of such-and-such. Such. They've done this with their life and they've done that with their life. And you see your kids walk through and then all of a sudden it happens. It happens in everyone. Brother Clint can tell you it happens. It's happened in every generation of the church. 
You as the pastor will be sitting there and some kid will walk by and they'll go, this is so-and-so, the daughter of such-and-such and friend of this and they're active in this and they're active in this. And then they'll say this, and they are an active member of Parkway Heights United Methodist Church and I will think to myself, I have never seen that kid or their parents ever in my life. I'm not even sure they live in town. I'm not even sure that they, if I said find Parkway on a map, I think they would point it at Hardy Street Baptist and get confused. They might even point over there at Peddler Heritage. They don't know what, what they're pointing. I want to say, what do you mean you're an active member? Obviously, the word active doesn't mean the same. Words change meaning all the time. Friends, I, I don't fault them for not being active. I fault them for thinking they're active. I'm afraid that in the church, we, we've assumed for ourselves that once in a while is good enough. And I'm not just talking about being in church. I'm talking about anything in the church. We want your time. Because where your time is spent is where your heart is. It's where your heart is. We can't change you. We can't. The, the beautiful thing about this confirmation process, if y'all aren't familiar with it, is it takes them several months and they do stuff together and they form bonds as a group and they put in so much effort. And I've seen churches that basically did confirmation by doing one or two classes and throwing them up there. Friends, it doesn't mean as much. Wherever you spend your time is what you love. So I'm going to ask you in this stewardship season that we're in to think about how you spend your time. I couldn't have a good marriage if all I did was walk in the house and go, leave me alone, Emily. I'm going out to the backyard. I'll be in at nighttime and go to sleep, and then I'll get up in the morning and leave from work. Our relationships are built through time. We need your time. We need it. Paul says you've got to have time so that you can put in the work. Paul warns them, you're spending your time doing what? Being idle. You're wasting your time on all this other stuff. Uh, Confirmands, your, your time is going to be uh, pulled away in a million different directions as you get to high school, as you get to college, social media, whether it's, uh, uh, y'all don't use Facebook but, but, or Twitter, maybe Snapchat or Be Real or something like that, whatever you're using, it's going to call for your undevoted attention. Break it and use it for something good. Paul says you need people's time, and then he says this, you need a productive attitude. You need a productive attitude, a can-do attitude, a hope-filled attitude. Susan in Founders Hall this morning brought out a great point about 2 Thessalonians. She said, these people weren't doing work because they thought Jesus was coming back any minute, so why waste your time? Why waste it? And Jesus wants to look at them, and I think Paul does look at them and say, any time spent in work for the Lord and wasted, have a great attitude about it. And come ready to serve and ready to work. Vibrant churches aren't people who are there to get in the way. 
They are full of folks who sacrificed their time, and they put in the work. Confirmands, let me talk to you just a minute, and y'all can listen in. You will get out of church and out of your faith what you put into it. And that's all you need to remember today. Whatever you put into your faith, mixed with what God is doing, will determine how much God impacts your life. And so my prayer for you is that you will put in all the effort that you can. Because here's what I see. As we confirm and baptize seventh graders, I know what you're all thinking. You're thinking to yourself, look at those young students. Look at those young folks. They have their entire life ahead of them. They can do great things for God. But let me tell you what, their next year and their next two years and three years are the same years that you've got too. And so how about we do this? How about we as a congregation show them what it's like to give of our time, of our talents, of our gifts, and our service, and our witness, so that they can come alongside us, and God can exponentially multiply what we're able to do. They are not the future of the church. They are the church of today, and so are you. And what we get out of Parkway Heights, I can guarantee you, is directly proportional to what we put in. Let's stop looking for excuses and start looking for ways that God can put us to work. There is no substitute for time and effort. Would you pray with me? Lord, we talk about lots of things, but we don't talk about our most precious commodity of time. The clock keeps ticking. And we keep making excuses, but you keep calling and hearkening to us. So Lord, as you hearken to us, as you speak to us, as you move in our midst, would you give us a powerful direction so that we can participate with you in bringing about your kingdom. These things we ask and pray in your name. Amen.